before we start, what episode are we on? Nine. Is it? It is nine. Okay, ready? Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. In this episode, we chat to Karun Chandhok, Sky Sports F1 pundit, the second ever Indian Formula One driver and the first Indian Formula E driver. Karun has driven pretty much everything and is a wealth of knowledge. He kindly invited us to his home a few days ago to chat about his career and life, which is just such an incredible journey. It's so interesting from racing anything he could get his hands on in India to the Formula One grid. It's a truly humbling story. Uh, we hope you enjoy. Uh, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Just search for the Motormouth podcast on your favourite podcast platform uh, where you can also leave us a review. And don't forget you can download the Motormouth app where you can get live race times, exclusive video content uh, from MMTV, create your own social profile and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. So welcome to episode nine of the Motormouth podcast. Um, we're hugely honoured to have uh, Karun Chandok on the show today, our first ever F1 driver. Born to Indian parents in 1984, Karun has raced all over the world on the biggest stages, including, as we know, Formula One, also Formula E and the World Endurance Championship, and now plies his trade, pounding the paddock, broadcasting Formula One to the masses. He's coached Isle of Man TT legend Guy Martin, consults for Williams Heritage Business, has his own karting carnival, and is the first Indian ever to be accepted into the BRDC. He's also had the pleasure of driving the current and very dominant Mercedes F1 car. We've got lots to talk about. A huge motormouth welcome to you, Karun Chandok. Thank you very much. Um, well, really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for letting us come into your living room. You've supplied us with uh, custard creams, ginger nuts, tea. It's a very, very lovely service you have going here. I <laughs> believe. It's a good choice of biscuits, actually. Well, I, mean, I, I am partial to a ginger nut. I think that's <laughs> They're an underrated biscuit, biscuit, I think. Yeah. Now, uh, we saw each other very recently. You were in the States, obviously, for the F1. We caught up briefly in the paddock. I was in the paddock. I know. I feel like the first question I should ask is, I apparently am the only one sitting around this coffee table that didn't go to America. How was Austin? It was It was good. It was uh, It was cold, though. Day one, Friday was freezing. Well, Thursday and Friday was absolutely freezing. It got better as the weekend went on, but, I mean, I love it. It's, it's probably my favourite, if not one of my top three races of the year. I think Austin. Really? Yeah, it's a great city. Great vibe, good restaurants, you know, great live music. Uh, and actually, the race itself, you know, there's always a bit of drama. Uh, and the crowd was incredible yeah, this year, wasn't it? And Sunday was absolutely rammed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, I what? think the crowds have actually gone up on previous years. I, I got there on um, Friday morning at the track and it was it was sold out. It seems like for the last few years, it's always been a constant, oh, America trying to make its mark in Formula 1. And now it seems that this is started to stabilise a bit and it's actually it's here to stay and it's it's doing a good job as a the first American track for- well, I, I met the guys from uh, ESPN who are the broadcasters in the States and yep. their numbers are up over 22% or something wow. this year oh, wow. so for, for US viewership which which is amazing, really. Yeah. And uh, I think that reflects in what we saw at the track, as Tim said, was sold out on, yeah. on Sunday. And I think, it's, you know, more people are watching on telly. They're going, oh, this is cool. Let's go watch the race in Austin. And, and then they turn up. So, yeah, very cool. Nice. And, and uh, a fairly emphatic performance from not only Lewis Hamilton, but Bottas. Like, he was, he was on it. I was, no, I was, was we're not biased, but I was rooting for him to just to try and keep things alive a bit more. Obviously, there's not much he could have done, really, more than what he did, but... And that I think I feel like the race was hyped up quite a lot at the start, as you would do, and then it kind of petered out midway through. But then just at the end, with Hamilton's going long and then undercutting and all that, it, it does provide. There is still we always had the same conversation: Oh, Formula One's boring. How do we spice it up? But you're not. It, it is. It is interesting and it is dramatic. It is one, even though championship sealed the sealed the deal before before the season's up. Yeah, I mean, I, I get really annoyed by people saying things like that because mm. at the end of the day. Not every minute of a it football match is entertaining. No. Not yeah. every minute of a cricket match is entertaining. It, it just it can't be. Yeah. And and uh, you know I think the, I don't think the race in Austin was particularly outstanding, but it was a decent race. There was bits going on. There was you know a bit of bit of drama, a bit of you know action between the leaders. It was a decent race, and uh, yeah, I mean. There are lots of things, of course, we can do to improve the sport. I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, yeah, I, I, I do get annoyed by people mm. going, oh, it was boring. Oh, yeah. It was better back in the 80s. 
No, it wasn't. Prost and Senna used to win races by laps. Yeah. yeah. I think we tend to look back with, with rose tinted right, glasses. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you, when you look back to those Senna days, and, you know, Mansell, I remember watching, and there'd be like a three-minute gap between first and second or third, you know. And I think we forget that back in the day, it wasn't, you know, action non-stop. I think there's probably more action now, more everything. I mean, the first lap in, first couple of laps in Austin, you had Norris flying past people. You had Ricciardo going nuts. Mm. Um, you had Albon coming from the back to go, go, go up into fifth or sixth or wherever he finished. Yeah. Oh, there was action. It was a race. No, it was brilliant. Um, but Karun, we are here to uh, mainly talk about you. Um, so let's start right at the beginning. What was that first glint in your eye where you were like, right, I want to be a racing driver? I, I don't know the exact moment. I don't think there was a moment as such. It's um, I, I grew up in a house full of motorsport. My my dad used to race. My granddad used to race. We ran a, a garage, basically a workshop, fixing cars and, uh, you know, ended up running a race and a rally team. So I grew up in that environment. We'd have people from motorsport coming in and out of the house and, and the office all the time. Um, so to me, it just seemed like a natural thing to do. You know, I, um, as far as I could remember, I wanted to be a racing driver. And then I grew up to be a racing driver. And I think it was only when I got to my mid-20s, probably, when I started meeting friends of mine from high school, who, you know, they finished high school, they've gone off to university, some of them have done their, their you know, master's or, or, you know, postgraduate degrees, and they're still trying to work out what they want to do in life. And and I, I couldn't really understand that because I was like, well, surely you know what you want to do in life. And, and it's only, I think, at that point, I realized I was quite unique. So, so was it cut and dry for you? You thought, I know what I'm going to be, and it's going to be a racing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, as far as I can remember, I think I was probably three, four years old and, and already you know, dreaming of being a Formula One driver one day. So um, it, it was a fairly uh, um, straightforward choice in terms of what I want to do. Getting there was anything but straightforward, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't think I ever thought of doing anything else really and your little boy is obviously going to follow in your footsteps I've seen him tearing around the kitchen this morning in his little um, mini Formula 1 car <laughs> uh, no he is not I'm, uh, I'm going to encourage tennis cycling uh, anything tennis, but. golf yeah the low entry but. sports swimming is a swimming, great one yeah exactly cheap, cheap as you like yeah exactly so uh, no, I th- to be honest I think a, a life in sport is, is hard in any sport um, but it helps it helps you get a bit of focus. I think, you know, focus is the mind, especially in the teenage years and stuff. You know, when when you see kids sort of just meandering through life and waking up at 11 o'clock in the morning, not really knowing what they want to do. Um, I think sport gives you a focus mm-hmm. and it gives you something to, to really get your, your mind tuned into. So, you know, I'd like him to take up a, a sport, um, whether it's a, to a professional level where he earns a living out of it is a different story, but I think it, it does help. Yeah, brilliant. Um, now, so growing up, you were saying obviously you were surrounded by motorsport. So were you, you were born in, in India? Yeah, yeah, in Madras. And um, yeah, born and raised. So I only moved to England. Uh, I still remember on the 1st of February 2002 to oh, wow. come and race a Formula 3. So um, yeah. I how, so how long were you growing up in India for then? How old were you then? So then? Until I was 18. Oh, right. Okay. So now we, we, you know, we, had, we had the Indian Grand Prix, of course. We don't anymore. What is the motorsport scene like in India? How come you were so surrounded by motorsport? Because on on the surface of it, it doesn't seem like motorsport is is a, a top priority there. So how comes you happen to be surrounded by it? And was there much to do when you were growing up in India in terms of getting that track action? I was very lucky in that respect, to be honest, because as I said, my family were, were in the business, mm. so to speak. Um, but also... I grew up in Madras, very close to the racetrack, um, right. and which was the first permanent racetrack we had there. So it meant that I could spend all of my free time going to the races. And, and you know, the, the level at the time was, wasn't at a very high professional level. Um, there weren't, you know, big manufacturers and things like that. Uh, and in fact, there was no karting, for example. So I never did a go-kart race in my life, which when I look at it, when I came to Europe and started looking back in hindsight, that was a huge disadvantage. You know, you think yeah. of... People, people my age, your know, Hamiltons and Rosbergs and, you know, I raced with Kubica and World Series stuff, you know, they've done so many years of karting. Yeah. They built that muscle memory up and, and therefore when they get to cars and single seaters, they're just there straight away. Um, you know, I think my, my dad and people like that in the 70s and 80s, he raced with people like Vijay Malia and stuff and they would just go off to different parts of the country and race on 
um, disused airfields, basically. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, and then by the time I came along, we had sort of single make categories of racing. Um, and that's when I started out. So how does a, a young Indian chap coming over to the UK for the first time, how do you find yourself in Formula One? That can't have been as easy as it sounds. What was the process to get there? Especially with no karting, yeah. Yeah, it was obviously a long process because I came, you know, I started off in 2000, so it took me 10 years to, to get there. Um, but I raced in India for a year, raced in Asia for a, for a season in 2001, and then um, came across here to do Formula Three. And, you know, I landed, as I said, in, in February in the middle of winter and you're going, Yuck. What, what is going on here? I mean, what, why is it dark at three o'clock? Yeah. I just couldn't comprehend what was going on. And, you know, it was very hard because things like I'd never driven the wet before. I'd never driven on cold tires before because in Asia it was always 40 degree track temp. When, when you came over at that point, was that with family or were you coming over on your own? No, my dad came with me right. just to set me up. And uh, so we went across to meet the team in, uh, it was a team called T-Sport in Brackley. Yeah. And I went up there and, and uh, it, was, it, it was so funny because, you know, I came from Madras, a city of 11 million people. And uh, the first day I go to make a, do the seat fit and meet the team and they go, oh, where are you going to live? And I said, well, right now we're, you know, staying at a hotel at Heathrow, so, yeah. you know, and uh, so they said, well, and I didn't know anybody else, so they went, well, why don't you, why don't you live in Brackley, and at least we're here, and yeah. we get to, you know, at least you'll have some friends around, so uh, I remember going with the estate agent around the town to look at some houses, and I said to the, to the estate agent, I said, so is this the, is this the suburb of the city? And the guy looked at me and <laughs> said, we've done, we've done three laps of the town already. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, but how's how's so, your mindset at that stage? I mean, it, coming over, okay, you're with your dad, but it's a huge cultural change. Yep. You're being chucked into British Formula 3, a hugely competitive series. What were you thinking? When you got here, it's all dark. Are you thinking, what on earth have I done? Take me home. Or this is it. This is the start of my dream. The first six months were very hard because, as you say, it was a cultural shift. You know, I, I couldn't cook. I couldn't even make a cup of tea. The first day I went, the team said, oh, yeah, you're the new boy. You can make a cup of tea. I went in the kitchen, turned the kettle on. I had no idea what to do next. I'd never made a cup of tea. Well, I can't confirm your skills have improved there. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> cappuccino was exceptional. Oh, well, there we go. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, the thing is, at that age, you're, you're young, you're you're the fire is so strong yeah. the motivation is so high to get to Formula 1 you'll charge through walls you do mm. anything and you know uh, as I, I come from a city where it was 35 degrees to being here in the cold world winter but you know you put your shoes on and you go out for a run and you just suck it up and you get on with it because you, you know if you're not doing it there's some Brazilian or Japanese kid out there yeah. or you know someone else who is and and and, and I think that that you're 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 young, dumb, and motivated, and in a way that does help you to just power on, uh, and that's what I did, you know. But I, I had a lot of shunts in the first part of the, that career when I came across, and it took me a while to find my feet, and then I did, and uh, but then the money problem stopped because yeah. the rupee plummeted against the pound, which was a real problem for us in that phase, and um, you know, so between two thousand four five. You know, I'd really pretty much run out of money and everything had stalled. So I went back to Asia 2006 for a season to race there. and um, Taking uh, seven wins, no less. I have done my research. Yeah, you uh, really have. Yeah. Nine poles from 12 races as well. Uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I went back to Asia for a season. and um, uh, But even at the end of that, I'd run out of money. I, I had no, no money and I thought, right, that's it, I'm done. And I, I'd spoken to a friend of mine, who um, uh, Anthony Hyatt, who runs Double R Racing, mm -hmm. the Formula Three team. And basically, I'd said to him, "I said, look, I'm I'm done. I mean, you know, I spent my whole life in motorsport. I haven't got any degrees. Um, can I get a job with you as a team manager?" And he said, "Okay, yeah, let's let's talk about that. We can do that." And then, um, uh, you know, so we'd actually started talking about work permits and paperwork and things like that. And um, and then I. Got a phone call from... Uh, before that, I'd met with Bernie and we, Bernie was helping me out to try and sort something out. But I hadn't heard anything from him over the winter. I, I spoke to him in November, early November. And he said, okay, leave it with me. I'll sort something out for GP2. And then November went, Christmas went, half of January, most of January went. Oh, right. And um, I, I hadn't heard anything back. And then suddenly I got a phone call from Bernie saying, right... 
Uh, I've done a deal with Durango. Um, Red Bull want to back you and put you on the Young Driver program. So this is Danny Baja's number, Red Bull. Give him a call. Um, and he uh, he wants to do something because, um, you know, they, 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 and, and they, they need another driver at GP2. And uh, the first test is next week at Paul Ricard. Good wow. luck. And he put the phone down. And at that point, you fall <laughs> off your Bernie chair. style. Yeah. yeah. God, that's unbelievable. So Durango. And then, and then GP2, first win, Spa. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a funny one because when I did the deal with Durango, they had finished last in the championship the previous yeah. season. And that was the last seat remaining on the grid. So it was a bit of a, you know, a desperate move to keep my career alive. But I didn't care. You know, I was in GP2. Yeah. And um, a step below F1. Formula 1 in your sights. Yeah. And, and there you are. So off I went to Ricard. And I was very lucky. It was it was a typically mad, chaotic Italian team. But I had an English engineer, um, Nick Wassilio, who was, who was very good at being quite organized. And in amongst all of this chaos, we had our own little bubble where we, we just got our heads down and focused and got the job done. And, um, you know, again, the first half of the season, I was a rookie and we had a bit of bad luck. You know, I should have won in Turkey, but Nakajima took me out. And, um, you know, we had, a, we had a few decent res- results on the table, which didn't quite work out. But then from the second half of the season onwards, I scored points in every race. And as you say, won at Spa, which was very cool. You know, yeah. to, win, to win at Spa was a mixture of relief and joy because, you know, I'd had three years out of the European limelight, really, just wasn't there but not really there and scrambling for money we were completely skinned at that point um you know family was mortgaged to the hilt and it was a real struggle 2004 five, six. so that was a, a a real relief to sort of get put back on the map and and because of that then christian and helmet gave me you know some tests with the f1 team i started doing some simulator work yeah, and then yeah. all, you know all of that started to snowball from there just before that stage um with red bull talking about money and finances obviously it's a nightmare trying to raise funds whether it's through you know remortgaging houses or sponsorship how are you funding yourself at this point is it literally family bending over backwards to help have you gone out and found some sponsors in india what what, what are you doing to support yourself no i, I was uh, it was a mixture um you know i i was very lucky i had a company called jk tires that backed me from my first ever race and then um you know off the back of that there was a, a battery company called amron um Kingfisher tipped in a little bit yeah. on occasion, uh, and there were a couple of other smaller Indian companies as well that 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 supported me. But it was a real challenge because, you know, when I started out in 2000, the rupee was 50 to the pound. Wow! And by the time I got to GP2, the rupee was 85 to the pound. So it, it, you know, for us, it was a huge problem in terms of the budget. Um, and also to sell motorsport to the to the Indian sponsors to the Indian audiences wasn't so easy then. It's still not easy now, no. frankly. But um, it was much harder then because the knowledge was was quite low. You know, mm-hmm. I remember going to um, press conferences at, at go kart tracks, for example, and you'd have a journalist from I'll never forget this as a journalist from the Times of India, which is the widest circulated paper in the country, and he looked at me and went, "So what's the difference between this and a and a Formula One car?" And he just you know, that that's the level of, of knowledge that there was in some pockets of the time. I'm generalizing, of course, there were some very knowledgeable journalists, but on the whole, it was still quite low, the level on average. So, um, yeah, it was a challenge, but, you know, we grafted away and pounded away and, and built, the, uh, uh, built the knowledge base, built the sport up as well, because that was half the challenge. You're trying to build up yourself as well as the sport. Yeah. Um, hand in hand and uh, it, it, you know raising funds was probably the, the most difficult part of the sport and and in many ways you know, I'm not making excuses for myself but in many ways that, that was also things that hurt you know I think back to Formula 3 I remember being in Pembury in a mid-season test in 2004 and I was sharing the garage with Nelson Piquet Jr who was of course no, no shortage of funding there yep. and uh, you know by that stage he had used twice as many sets of tires and done twice as much testing as I had. Yeah. And you're trying to compete on the same level. He's he's got new engines every weekend. He's you know it's just money no object. Mm. 
you can't compete with people like no, that. No, you right. can't. And, it, and unfortunately, that is one of the perils of, of motorsport, isn't it? I mean, even at the karting level, we've talked about it before. Mm. It, you could go through £100,000 easily on a, on a 10-year-old kid. It's unbelievable. And then when you reach, you know, GP2 or formerly GP2, F2, Formula 1 levels, you know, and when you've got the likes of Lance Stroll, you know, how on earth are you meant to compete with that? But I think at least now with FIA, F3 and, and GP2, even then and in Formula 2 now, it, there is a bit more of an Things are a bit more regulated, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. because, you know, testing is limited. The number of tyres are limited. The engines are, are all the same. Yeah, sure. Um, you're, you're limited on the number of engines and turbos and things you get. So actually, it, 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 there is a bit more of an equaliser. Um, of course, the good teams are, are always going to be the good teams and budget does help that because you can hire better people and, and have a bit more R&D. But but it's less of um you know less of an unequal situation than there was in F three back then where you could go to Neil Brown and get a new engine every day you wanted mm-hmm. to basically yeah sure. um let's talk about that relationship with Red Bull so how did that start and um you look, what how do you look back on it now considering you know that is a still very much a Red Bull driver program that runs today and I think very much divides opinion on how how useful versus damaging it can be to a driver's career? I don't think it can be damaging at all. I I always disagree with people on that Mm -hmm. because, you know, at the end of the day, Helmet is hard and Christian is hard, but they're hard because they expect results. Mm. As long as you're delivering results, they're happy with you. Um, you know, I, I, I feel very lucky to have worked with them uh, in the time that I did. They gave me my first chance to drive a Formula One car and, and, and see what, what a team like that can be. Because at the time, they were still building up to yeah. championship success. Um, you know, they, they, they paid for me to go racing in GP2. Without them, there's no way I'd be sitting here doing this podcast. Mm, yeah. And... Which is obviously the highlight of your career today. <laughs> the pinnacle. But, they, um, but they, of course they expect results. And I think in hindsight, when I look back, I didn't do a good enough job of building a personal relationship with Helmut, I think. That, right. That's the one mistake I made. You know, I, I remember being on the, you'd come, on the flight back from races and stuff. Um, you know, Sebastian Buemi was the other Red Bull driver in GP2 at the time. And he'd be on the phone to Helmut all the time talking non-stop and, and building that close one-to-one rapport. Um, and I, I didn't do a good enough job of that, I think. Um, but but what happened was, as we came along to, um, you know, as things went on, and I understood how hard he was. I mean, he once called me an old man when I was 23. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't know how to react. I've really. <laughs> um, that before. Uh. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, as things were developing, I could see... In 2009, you know, you had Sebastian and Mark in the main team. You had uh, Boemi, Algasari in the wings. Uh, Daniel had just signed to do World Series with Jev. So I could see there were a lot of drivers there. And I was fortunate that the Indian Grand Prix was coming along, so I had some backing from, from, from them. So I chose to step away from the program and, and go off on my own. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, I, I'm one of the few left on good terms because, for example, in 2010, when I got to F1, I did an ambassador deal uh, with Red Bull and Helmet and um, Thomas Uberall, who, who runs the motorsport program with Helmet. So, you know, I, I went back and did an, a brand ambassador deal with them for a couple of years. So, so is that while you're racing for Hispania, but with Red yeah. Bull backing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, I, I, I left things uh, on good terms and I, you know, I still have a good conversation yeah, a good rapport with uh, with everyone at Red Bull for example you know yeah. I've, I've, I've jumped in to drive their show car on occasion I've, yeah. I've you know there were a couple of times where they needed um, someone to wear a Max Verstappen helmet and do some yeah. filming for uh, them and I jumped <laughs> in to do that yeah. in, in recent times so yeah I, I, I'm you know I've been very 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 conscious that we operate in a very small world in a very small community and you've got to keep those relationships strong. Mm. Well, to your point, Harry, I think, you know, talking about is, is it a damaging thing, this sort of conveyor belt of young drivers? I think certain drivers may be in that line of thought. If you look at the lights of Kafiat and, uh, and Gasly, do you, you know, how do you think it, in their minds, what are they thinking? Are they thinking this is the end of the road for me in terms of top level F1 or are they, are they thinking, right, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm going to force my way back in? Well, it must yeah. come down. 
down to how mature you are at the end no, of the day, doesn't it? Or? But take a step back. They wouldn't be in that position in the first place without Red Bull. True. Mm. And I think that that's the thing. You know, people people start getting the violins out and playing the sympathy card for, yeah. for people who get dropped. But if you're delivering, then they won't drop you. Yeah. They, they'll find a way to make it work for you. Uh, and that's that's the reality. It's a fair point. I mean, Formula One's not a charity, is it? I mean, you know, even harking back to years ago with Hamilton, he would never have got to win. You know, McLaren would have dropped him. Dennis would have dropped him years yeah. ago had he not kept winning. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just staying in GP2, um, you started to meet Bruno Senna. And I know you guys are obviously very good friends. You get on quite well. How did that come about? Because you, you've obviously, you've been teammates in Formula E. You've worked so close together since, was it GP2 where you first sort of met and became mates? Uh, yeah, I mean, we met in 2007, of course, because we were both racing. Yeah. And, actually, that's not true. We met in 2006 because he was racing in F3 with Double R. And actually, it might have even been 05. Yeah, 05. And I, um, there was, there was a series called A1GP. Yeah, oh, yes. That was happening yeah. at the time. And the Indian team decided to have a shootout for um, the seat of the team. It, it was a complete mess. Anyway, we all get in the car. A bunch of us went down to Pembury to do this shootout. And it was with Double R. And um, Anthony Hyde had spoken to Bruno and said, look, we're gonna, we need to do this thing. We're going to use your car. Do you mind? And Bruno wasn't very happy about it, but he'd gone off to Brazil on holiday. And uh, we did, so we were using his car and I shunted it in a oh, massive no. shunt <laughs> oh, on about lap five, destroyed the car. And um, and obviously then there was an awkward conversation with Bruno after yeah. to explain it. Um, but we met later that year through um, through the guys at Double R and then, then we became friends, you know, in 07, we started racing together in GP2 and spent more time together. Then we really became friends over the winter of 07 into 08 because we both signed with iSport mm. um, and, and travelled the world together. It's amazing how, because you, you think, can you be friends with someone who is your teammate, well, who Lando, you are? Lando and Carlos would, uh, would probably Well, that's very true, actually. You look at that and I suppose, oh, well, clearly you can, but did you ever find, do you do you see why it's quite easy to, to not, to or for friendships to fail or for that competitive edge to, to slide in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it, it's about a mutual respect mm. thing. You know, you both want to be, win. You, you're both competitive people. And of course, you know, I was pissed off when he beat me and he was pissed off when I beat him. But at the same time, we had a respect for each other. Yeah. You know, we, we respected each other's abilities. We were very transparent with each other. Um, you know, when we went testing and stuff, we were very open with sharing information and you know we'd i think iSport as a team were very good at at managing that they would make us do parallel programs and share the information um in the debriefs and stuff in a very open way so we we worked together really well and i think what what ended up happening is the families got together as well you know bruno's um mom and sisters would come to the races his manager chris goodwin and, and my dad would be at all the races and so we'd all go out and have dinner together, and so the families became friends. Yeah, and um, and and uh, you know, I think that as long as you've got respect for each other, you know, people talk about um, you know Daniel and Max last year, Red Bull having all these issues, but they actually get on. Yeah, they, they get on actually really well because they they do have respect for each other. Um, obviously, Daniel wasn't happy because he was being beaten by mm. Max, and that that's a different story, you know, but. But in terms of respect, they do they did respect each other's abilities. And I think as long as you have that, you can you can get on. Hmm. I think what's going to be interesting, just talking about Lando and Carlos, is because they get on like a house on fire. You know, they're on social media together the whole time. Um, I, I was I spent a little bit of time with Lando um, in America with a couple of interviews, and he was very complimentary about Carlos. I'm just waiting for that day that they crash into each other. Because it, it, it cannot surely go on like this with those two being so close. Is it is it is that quite an unusual relationship? Yeah, but again, it, it's... Uh, but it's quite a modern one as well, a, though, because it, it obviously it's so social media focused yeah. as well with Lando and his memes and gifts and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I mean, it is unusual, of course, but I think, again, you want to see that when they're in the pressure for a World Championship battle, if yeah. that stays. And I think, you know, there, there are going to be moments where things get a bit rocky, but as long as you're able to talk about it and be transparent with each other and, so, and sort it out like two mature people, yeah. then I think... It, it comes down to personality and maturity, like you say. Exactly. Um, Formula One. 
Hispania racing. I, I was at Silverstone many moons ago watching a Hispania racing car, f- f- well, drive around the track. Yeah. I was going to say fly. Then I reduced it to drive around the track. It did. It sounded a little bit funny. I remember thinking then that engine doesn't quite sound like all the others. What was it like as a car to drive? Was, was it difficult? Um, and how was that experience in Formula One for you? Um, how did it start? Well, I mean, first of all, the yeah. engine was should have been the same as everybody else, unless we had a cracked exhaust or something. But, uh. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, at the end of the day, the, you know, the, the small teams were always going to be up against it. And yeah. and Hispania as well. It, it's a shame. To me, it's, it's a team which had a lot of unfulfilled potential, actually, because, um, you know, we had a partnership with Delara, which should have been a lot better. Um, but then Colin Collis, who was running the team, fell out with Delara, mm. and that whole thing turned into a mess. It's a shame because when I went to the seat fit, you know, Mr. Delara took me to the wind tunnel, and I went to the design office with the people there, uh, and you know, we had sixty points of downforce meant to be on the car. So initially, you know, the car we, the car we ended up racing the whole season was only meant to go to a hotel in Murcia as a launch. That's oh. all it was meant to do. It was meant to be the launch car of the hotel. And then you were meant to get uh, an update for um, Bahrain, which was meant to be the race package. Then they went, okay, well, we can't do it for Bahrain. We'll do it for Barcelona. And then then it it just never came. So it's a shame because it was the people in the engineering office were actually very good. You know, we have Jeff Willis. We had Jeff Willis, who was now one of the top people at Mercedes. We had Richard Connell, my race engineer, who's one of the top people at Bricksworth, Mercedes. Uh, Tony Chukurea went off to be um, a chief race engineer at Ferrari. Uh, Stephen Mitis became head of the chief engineer of the Porsche LMP1 program. Yeah. Uh, so you Pou- had some, yeah, a yeah, big yeah. team. Chevy Pujola is chief race engineer at Alpha wow. at the moment. Um, you know, we had we had really good, clever people who've gone on to do good things, and and so there was a lot of unfulfilled potential it's just because the money dried up yeah yeah it's such a pity it's so difficult for these smaller teams to to come in and stay you know it, make, it makes the job that people like Haas are doing look incredible yeah exactly you know I think uh, Haas have done a very good job building that partnership with Ferrari yeah. and, and with with Delara and that's made it work for them but yeah it's, it's a shame but on the flip side to me it was a culmination of a dream you know it allowed me to be a Formula 1 driver mm-hmm. which nobody can ever take away from you you know from that day forward your life has changed and uh, and you can you can always be known as a formula one driver which is um you know later on in life and and it does open other doors and um you know in terms of your career that's that's very important of course and you know going to the paddock for the first time in bahrain i've obviously been to the paddock several times but going there as a grand prix yeah. driver uh, i remember going to they had um the pre-season picture or something on on the thursday and the first driver who um, who came and shook my hand was Michael Schumacher. And, uh, you know, he, he sort of shook my hand, said, welcome to F1, you know, uh, you know, want to know where I'm from. And just, just you know, Maybe. polite conversation. Yeah. But I just thought he didn't need to do that. No. When I was growing up, I had a poster on the wall of, you know, Michael winning his first world championship. And, uh, you know, that it was his return to F1 in 2010 with Mercedes and... He had his own stuff going on and obviously the world's media chasing him and stuff. Mm. But he, he didn't need to take five minutes to stand there and talk to me, but he did, which I thought was, you know, it was very nice of him. Amazing. Wow. Um, at that point, are you able to take it in? You know, you've got multiple world champions surrounding you. You're lining up on the grid and seeing, you know, the back of Schumacher's car. It must be a surreal experience. Do you take it in there and there or do you look back now and think, my God, what, what an experience? No, I think at the time you're just focused on the job. You know, mm. you're focused on the race. You're focused on what you need to do. Um, so I, I don't think you actually appreciate it. No, you know, you're you're under the pressure of 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 the whole thing. So um, yeah, I think it's only in hindsight that you sit back and and reflect. Really, yeah. Obviously, a very tough year. How do you keep your mentality? to keep striving to, to get the best out of every weekend? Because obviously I suppose it became apparent very quickly what you were dealing with here. How how do you stop it encroaching and, and try and get on with, with the job in hand? I mean, some of the stuff was was utterly bonkers. You know, I think uh, Barcelona comes to mind when um, Colin had done a deal with Christian Klein to do some FP1 sessions. Obviously there was some money coming in, I guess. But we... Um, 
I remember I, I got in my kit and went into the garage to get in the car at the start of FP1 and Christian walked in the garage in his kit with his helmet and we both started looking at each other going uh, what are you doing here and he went what are you doing here oh Oops. no and then I looked at the car and the car had my name on one side and his name oh on the other God. so when I so no, it, nobody knew <laughs> you know who was meant to be driving the car until Colin came along and, and said obviously Christian was doing FE1 which yeah. you know he's given us a bigger check so he's yeah, gonna get in the nobody, car nobody nobody you know oh had, my God. Had chosen to tell me in advance yeah. which was quite <laughs> awkward um, but you know there were moments like that um but it was fine, you know. You, you know, some of it was was completely mad, and mm. uh, you know, in the end, obviously, we fell out with Colin quite spectacularly. Um, and uh, you know, it was weird because we, uh, Colin's a, a strange character because he's he's unbelievably motivated. He works like a dog, you know. He works absolute hours, twenty four seven, and he's. He um he is passionate, you know. He puts he is passionate about it, but he's got lots of flaws and faults along with it. Um, anyway, we you know so we end up falling out for years, and then it was really odd in 2017, In fact, my dad and I were walking down the paddock in Le Mans, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we just heard this voice saying. What? You're not going to say hello to me? It's like, I mean, we've walked past each other many times in the years in between, and he's just blanked me. And yeah, suddenly, he, you know, we just stood there and we just stood in the paddock chatting for probably 45 minutes. Oh, my God. And my dad and I just looked at each other and like, what is going on? <laughs> and, um, and then since then, you know, I've kept in touch with Colin and, um, you know, he, he and I are both friends with Jonathan Williams and we've had dinner and together and stuff and you know water under the bridge now mm-hmm. and we've just got on with life but he, he's uh, not tried to get you in his bicolis machine in WEC <laughs> no no no, no <laughs> he's uh, yeah he's he's got a program going with that yeah. Yeah. yeah Um. so your so that's your first season in uh, Formula 1 so what were the can you take any highlights from that obviously the, being in Formula 1 a culmination of a dream is there any other standout moments throughout yeah. that season yeah I mean you know you're, I always say in the sport you're racing against your circumstances mm-hmm. even today yeah you know if you're if you're George Russell all you're doing is racing against your teammates mm-hmm. if you're an alpha you're racing against the midfield pack you're not yeah. competing in the series so in a similar situation at that time we were competing against the three other new teams now Lotus were the most competitive of the lot they were the most organised they had a bit more funding than the others so um, they were slightly out of out of reach, um, but you know, on days we were competing against them. You know, there were days um, like Monaco where I managed to get ahead of the Manor cars, or, or I suppose they called Virgin back then, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, and, and the Lotuses. And uh, I remember in Canada I had a good race with Timo. I ended up finishing ahead of Timo, and 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 obviously you're racing against Bruno as well yeah. because as teammates, you know, so you're trying to compete and beat each other. So. Um, yeah, no, there were, there were races. Valencia, I remember finishing ahead of Lucas in the Virgin car and, and Bruno, which was a good race for me. Um, you know, so you, you're picking your you're picking your battles mm. against the people you're, you're racing with. And uh, it allowed me to to be established as a as a credible racing driver. Um, and, that, you know, that's all you're aiming to do in a, in a small team at the back of the grid. Yeah. You're not competing for points. You're not competing for wins. You just want to be established as a respectable, credible racing driver. Mm. Yeah. Now, in, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip forward a couple of seasons because um, Formula One, you went into uh, World Endurance Championship racing with the likes of David Brabham. You went into the FIA GT Series and then 2014-15, Formula E. So Mahindra, so how did this come about? And, and sell Formula E to me. I'm struggling with Formula E. Uh, I I don't know if I can do that. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so so basically, I I'd known Alejandro Agag for many years because yeah. there was a time I was talking about racing for them in GP two when he was an owner of Campos, and it didn't happen then. Um, but he so we got talking about me getting involved with the series as one of the development drivers along with Lucas. And um, then he said to me, he said, look, what's the chance of getting an Indian team involved? So I went back and got in touch with Mahindra and, and I did all the initial 
dialogues with Mahindra and I actually brokered the deal between Mahindra and Formula E. Right, okay. Um, oh, wow. Which, um, you know, Dilbag Gill, who's now the head of the Formula E team, never seems to really acknowledge. But, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I was I was part of that process. I think they hired him only in August, but I'd already had several meetings between March and, and August with them and yeah. got the whole ball rolling on that. Uh, and then Dilbag and I worked together to get get the deal over the line so i uh, you know i worked to get them into the series and then you know had a contract to race for them for a for a season uh, it was a bit of a frustrating season to be honest we um you know that we started off quite competitively i think i finished fifth and sixth in the first two races and should have had a podium in the second race we had a problem with the pit stop so we started off reasonably okay and then as the season went on we just went backwards you know mm-hmm. both bruno and i would be half reasonable in free practice and then we'd qualify together at the back and it just it just fell apart i don't know why competitiveness just fell apart and um it was a frustrating season to be honest um and that that team up with bruno was that is that was that pre-planned or again no, he did it all himself that was totally yeah he yeah, oh, wow. yeah he made done the deal totally independently okay. um, I, I knew obviously he was what talking about what was going on but yeah. it happened independently um but yeah it it just sort of ne- never worked out and mm. I, I found it quite frustrating really because you know I thought I was I was putting in all the effort and just we just weren't getting the results and uh, um, it was a strange car to drive because at that time they didn't have electronic brake balance control so the, the you know it was really difficult to get the brake balance sorted and the regen um, and I don't think as a team we were ever as well organized or well um, you know structured at that time Obviously, yeah. now, now they, it was early they days. There was that was that was season, the first season, season one, that was season yeah. one, yeah. 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 But so, to, to answer the question on Formula E on the whole, I think I think it does have a place in the motorsport world because the manufacturers like it, and I think um, it can coexist in Formula One. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it it should or will replace Formula One. I, I I'm a firm believer that Formula One should be the pinnacle of our sport. It should be the fastest loudest yep. sexiest cars with the best drivers on the planet not the loudest at the moment unfortunately no i agree that's yeah. what i'm saying it sh- is what it, it should, should be, be. Mm. yeah and i think um you know when you uh, the, the formula e races yeah there's lots of argy bargy and there's action and there's a bit of unpredictability and they have different people winning it but as you say they haven't really drawn the audiences in yet have no. they? You know, and you they sort have... of feel like if because they're all city centre races aren't they you sort of feel like if they took it out if, if they put it at Silverstone would anyone actually go because they've got to drive there as opposed to walk down the street yeah, yeah yes point A but also point B they, they won't look very quick no, no well that's the thing when they, no. when they drive on the Mexico track they look awful yeah. because they go down that that start finish straight and it looks like the slowest thing known to man yeah so, so that yeah i mean would people come that's one question but also i think to make it look better as a as a sport it needs to be but also street circuits. i think you, you know you alluded to it the noise is an issue like I, the sound of electric car you know on the road is quite cool it's silent you know you think great but when you go to a, a race and a racetrack you you don't want to just hear tires screeching you want to hear a roar well in my opinion, you want to hear a roaring engine. And I just really struggle with this mm. sort of quiet Formula E. And, and like I said, when we were chatting to Nicky uh, a couple of podcasts ago, you know, give him a noise, make him sound like Tron. Yeah. Him, but what's, uh, what's funny is, you know, we say that, and I, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, I would love to have the sound of a V10 or a V12 back yeah. in F1, for example. But what's funny is I, um, this year, the Goodwood Festival of Speed, you know, you had all of these cars, V10s, V12s, making loads of noise and stuff. And then Formula E had a car there. And what was really funny is uh, I spoke to three or four kids who were around five, six years old. Yeah. And they all went, oh, daddy, daddy, you know, to their dads going, daddy, those cars are too loud. I like this one. Really? And they all liked the sound of the Formula E car. So on one hand, I'm going, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You need to go out and listen to some proper cars more often. This is an age thing, Karun. You, you and I are starting to show our age here. It's that generation uh, Z or yeah. whatever, yeah. Well, you, yeah. You, I mean, you, you've worked with some young drivers. Is it, uh, you, who are you involved with, Arjumani, or is it? Yeah, Arjumani, yeah. so, his younger brother, Kush. So yeah. I, I used to, in a past life, I managed young racing drivers as well. And um, even in the early days of Formula E, a lot of those were saying 
that's where I want to be. You know, they, they weren't saying Formula One anymore. It was like, no, Formula One is unrealistic. I'm never going to get there. So, you know, I want to be in Formula E. I get paid to race. You know, it's modern. It's green. It's all the things that I like as a young person. Yeah, but they're talking about, in all of that, what you just said, the key sentence to me is them saying, I'm never going to get to Formula One. Yeah, yeah. They've accepted you know, they, already. The initial aspiration is still Formula One. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And, yeah. and I think F1... Hopefully 2021 will carry yes, on what yeah. they're doing and, and retain their place as the pinnacle of the sport. And Formula E can can certainly coexist as a separate vertical of the sport, just like Le Mans has done or IndyCar has done or NASCAR has done. Yeah. They've all coexisted for years. Yeah, yeah. So there's no reason why that can't happen. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And 2021, while we're on the subject, I'm quite excited about 2021. I've got a good Cars look great the from cars the sketches. epic. And... Um, this whole um, ground force um, element using the, the base of the car as opposed to the aero on, on, on the surface of the car, surely that's going to have an improvement in the racing. Are people going to be able to get closer? That's the theory, yeah. I, I think they will, certainly. I think it's a question of how, you know, what we've seen is, is you know, the, the first public release of the rules. I'd love to see what happens when we get to 2021, mm. how much of this is still in place. But the theory works. You know, I think back to GP2 when we raced in that. We had a, a simple single plane, main plane front wing, one single flap. Yeah. And most of the downforce came from the tunnels. We had skirts, plastic skirts as yeah. well. So you created a real suction effect. And the racing was great. We yeah. could actually, we could overtake. We could really follow each other through Cops and Beckett's and, um, you know, have some proper racing. Uh, I remember, you know, it, it, in... Even difficult circuits like Barcelona, you could get decent racing. Yeah. So I think the having experienced that, you know, you'd have to say the theory behind 2021 is right. So yeah. I'm, I'm very cautiously optimistic. As a, as a aerodynamic novice such as I, I often wonder why they didn't do this before because they did it back in the day, didn't they? They had the skirts to create ground effect and then it was banned because it was so effective and they've not really done it since. And then all of a sudden you're sort of thinking, well, how can we get rid of this dirty air to make racing closer? create ground effect it just seems to me as a layman it seems like an, an obvious thing to do how mm. come it's taken so long for us to do it i i i wish i knew the answer because frankly they should have done it for the 2017 rule. the 2016 into 2017 rule changes were a terrible idea yeah uh, you know it yeah. was driven by the fact by because a bunch of fans got together and went oh f1 looks too slow we need to speed the cars up yeah but it doesn't matter. And no. all you've done is made the racing worse. Yeah. Uh, and really, all of that time and money spent to do the 17 cars, because the cars are so big yeah. and so heavy now as well. That they, uh, you know, that's the only downside with the 2021 20, rules. There's going to be another 25 kilos on top. Mm. You know, mm. when I drove Montoya's 2004 car, I remember thinking, my God, this thing looks like, it feels like it's going to kill me at every corner. Yeah. It was a brutal, violent attack on my senses. It was unbelievable. 950 horsepower, 605 kilos. It was incredible. Yeah. And now we've got cars which are 138 kilos heavier. Yeah. They're going to be another 25 on top. It's a big difference. How, how do you feel the um, the Adrian Newey's of this world, for example, are going to feel about these these rule changes when you think there's so much less aero you can put onto the car, less bits and pieces, and less sort of using brain power to create airflow and so on? Is, is that all going to be happening underneath the car, out of sight, creating channels for air underneath the car, or are they still going to be allowed to play around a little bit with the aero on top? Uh, Adrian will hate the rules. Mm. Any, any aero creative person will hate the rules. But we can't write. We can't let the engineers dictate that. You know, sure. we have to let the show uh, dictate mm. that. We have to let the 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 end the end product has to be entertaining for the fans. And if you allow engineers to write the rules, it's not going to be. Yeah. You know, we end up with, with cars which are way too aerosensitive. So, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to ignore that opinion. Yeah. I think and, and go down the path of what makes it better racing. But also. We're going to, you know, as part of the cost-cutting measures, for example, they're freezing the gearboxes yeah, for five yeah. years. I think a lot of their suggestions, suspensions are being simplified. A lot of those things will mean less cost, but it will automatically mean that there's going to be job cuts in yes. Formula One. Yeah. Now, that's yeah. obviously not popular yeah. for the teams because they don't need all these people designing these bits. And, you know, gearboxes are a big department. 
So on one side you go, okay, that's bad for those people and you sympathize. But what the hope is, if the costs come down, we can have an 11th and a 12th and a 13th team yeah. come into Formula 1 and then all of those people with good experience mm-hmm. go to those teams right. and, and we have a much bigger it's, spread. It's a real reset, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I know what I've just said is slightly uh, a slightly long-term view, but we have to start thinking mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And it, Is that where you want to see more teams on yes. the grid? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's wrong that... You know, there aren't more seats for new young drivers yeah. to come in. I think, you know... That was the beauty, I suppose, of those three new teams those, when they came in. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I was lucky to be at the um, end of GP2 and ready for Formula 1 in 2010 when those teams came along. You think in 2010, you know, we had um, myself, Degrassi, Senna, um, Petrov, Hulkenberg. You know, five yeah. people from GP2 all got their chance in F1. Which um, it doesn't happen these days. Often. One, two, if yeah. that. Isn't I mean, this, it? Yeah. this year was a bit of an anomaly because you got yes. Lando, George, and and Albon. Mm. But um, go the Brits. Yeah, um, but yeah, all well, but all very well backed drivers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I think it's really important for F one to have two or three small teams. You know, a kid like Nick Cassidy. Yeah, he's yeah. one Japan in yeah. Japan Super Formula Super GD. Japanese F3, he's not even getting a test yeah. in F1. He's a hugely talented driver. Um, I, I used to look after a guy called Stuart Moore who raced against him in Japanese F3, and Nick was just smashing it every weekend. He's he, he yeah. should he's the kind of guy that should be coming through into Formula 1. Listen, um, we could talk about 2021 all day. It's a subject that, that um, is fascinating, and, and there's many opinions about it. But we have a challenge for you. Oh, yes. Um, so we are going to test your knowledge on yourself. Over to you, Harry. I can't remember okay. which button's the one that does the music. It, oh, God, now you're testing me. I think it's that one. Hey, there we go. This is quite cool. So this is called Motor Mouths, and it's a game we've come up with um, where basically we've done it to pretty much almost every guest by the first couple, and we play them bits of team radio, clips from things, and get them to guess three things about each clip, uh, who said it, what they're talking about, and where slash uh, the year. Um, okay. Normally, it's team radio that relates to the driver. So what I've done for you is I've gone through the archives uh, and I found clips of you. Oh, wow. Um, so you should top score on this. So you, I think oh, I think it's actually going to be very, very difficult for you. But um, so they are clips of you talking uh, and I want you to basically guess and tell me um, what it was you were talking about okay. uh, and the, give me the context of the situation and, if, and then for another point, um, where slash when. Okay, so should we hit the first one? Here we go. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a fun day, I have to say. I've really enjoyed it. It's been flat out. You know, you have to be mentally completely uh, attuned with what was going on. Um, but it's been fun. It's, the track actually in the race really was a lot of fun to drive. You know, it got rubbered in, the grip was good. And it was a lot of fun to drive, so uh, I really enjoyed it. What are we thinking? I could be in the I know. Really <laughs> <laughs> so you're clearly racing. Yeah, uh, something. I've had lots of fun days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was trying to find team radio from your from F1 days, but there's like I couldn't find any. You didn't. You obviously didn't like chatting Maybe on the radio that much. The radio. Yeah. Yeah. I swore too much. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, any ideas? Uh, was it was wasn't Formula E? Was it Formula E? It was Formula E. Yeah. Yeah. Give you half a point for that. Beijing, maybe? The yes. Oh, Beijing? hello. Yes. Okay. Beijing. Yeah. Wait, hang on. I need my I pen. didn't have that many fun days in Formula E. So. <laughs> Can you remember where you finished? Uh, sixth? Fifth or sixth? You actually finished fourth. fourth. Did I? Yeah. yeah. So that was you, um, obviously, with Mahindra at... Uh, on finishing fourth at the Beijing E-Prix in 2014. Well, you had a lot of fun, clearly. Yeah. Fun, yeah, fun, clearly. fun. So I'm going to give you one and a half for that one. I thought I finished fifth. Wasn't that I the think... next race? For Malaysia... what, what you fourth and fifth? Uh, I don't know. I think because I, yeah, the battery overheated. I got, I passed Sam for Google fourth it. and then the battery overheated and then he passed me back because on, I think the last two laps, the, the battery, I remember the battery at 57 degrees and I went into a, uh, low power mode. Oh, oh God. So I'll let Tim Google that, but I might get a <laughs> point. Okay, well, we, he's going to fact check. While he does that, we'll move on to number two. All right, see if you have any idea what this one might be. Oh, that's the Mercedes from, from a few weeks ago. G-Force is unbelievable. Given the fact that I've got a thousand horsepower, I can't believe 
Yeah. I've, I've, Are I've you sure? It's a lot in the edit. Are you sure? I'm fairly sure. Are you sure? You're not. That's not right. Oh, no, the Williams. Yes. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. I'm going to give you two for that. You don't get the full marks because you were so convinced that yeah. it was Mercedes. Um, but that's a hard one because, yeah, so that was you uh, driving around Silverstone in the 2017 FW40, uh, isn't it? Um, that sounded like a pretty epic car. Um, and we haven't even got to the Mercedes yet. Okay. I think you're on that one there. Yeah. Number three. Lucky boy. Such a lucky boy. This is the greatest. Oh, the mantle. Like a hear the engine. Yeah. So it was very emotional music in that one. Um, yeah. So that was you driving uh, the Williams FE08C, I believe no, it was called. No. FW14B. Oh. Oh, maybe we've got the wrong. Oh, well, no. Hang on a second. No, oh, was that the wrong one? I'm I'm not convinced that uh, I think Harry, your facts are correct. Oh. So just think- just to just to confirm, uh, Beijing twenty. Oh. What, what were we looking at? Twenty fourteen. Fourth place. Three hand up. I need to get more points money out of it. I know my facts. Yeah, like yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they owe me some points See what Dilbag's right? up to now. Um, you're actually incorrect, Karun. If my uh, knowledge serves me right, so that wasn't Nigel Mansell's. That was the F E O A T driving around Monaco. Unless was that's it? unless that's been plugged in the wrong way around. Oh, well, we'll find out. We'll find out. Okay, we'll find that. So that one is. Uh, I'm going to give you three, but it could be nothing. If, uh, that one. Depending oh, on yeah, this. You, no, you could be right. Actually, play that again. One more. Oh yeah. Well, now he's interested. Lucky boy. Such a lucky boy. This is the greatest racetrack yeah. in the world. racetrack in the world yeah, yeah. yeah. oh there we go oh Karim Harry I feel like yourself giving down you a high five you I know he's done that. it he's done it alright and final one you should hopefully get this one you sit so much higher it's so exposed in the cockpit you can see out the side this was um, the Monaco OHC as well wasn't it no I mean, You've already, you have already said this answer Oh, Mansell's. This yes. is Mansell's. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. Mansell's. So that was the FW14B around Silverstone. Oh, God, Karun. You know, I'm going to give you, I'll give you one for that one. Really I'm going to give you one. Well, you so, can't. No, that's zero. Well. I got it completely wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. I'm quite generous normally, but. I think this might be our worst score so far. <laughs> so uh, you joined the leaderboard. So let's do the math. It's not hard. Um, <laughs> so let me get the leaderboard up. So you sit with. Karin, it's not looking good. Oh, no, it's, it's you got three and a half, oh. um, and that puts you fifth and last on the oh. leaderboard behind Nikki Shields, who got five and a half. Charlie Martin sits in third with sixth. Bobby Thompson is uh, up in second with seven points, and Adam Christodoulou sits at the top at the moment with ten points. So shows how much attention I paid to my own voice. That's a that's a poor effort, Karin. But oh well, thanks for playing Motormouth. I've got a question for you seeing as there is a couple of clips there um, of you driving Formula 1 cars you recently drove uh, the Mercedes F1 car would you say that was uh, the best F1 car you've ever driven or was there something else that really tickled your fancy it's, it's a funny one isn't it to guess to say what is the best but in terms of perfection yes you know it was it was perfect you know it, it was balanced it, it had amazing downforce it was confidence inspiring it, it was just as as in terms of perfection. Yes, it was the best race car I've driven. Was it the most exciting? No, um, the Montoya car was mm-hmm. was the one that that you know scared me. The Mercedes didn't scare me at all. Um, you know, it was very confidence inspiring, which is which is exactly what Mercedes wanted to be, yeah, of course. Yeah. So that you you can argue that it is the best car. Um, emotionally, though, I think the Mansell ninety two car was you know. That's the car I grew up watching, mm. Red Five and Nigel at Silverstone, mm. the crowd invasion and all that. So, yeah, I think I, I mean, there's an argument, isn't there, that the the current F1 cars are almost too easy to drive. Who was that clip of? I think you shared it actually as well. Like, there was a clip. Was it Vettel of driving one-handed? Yeah, or, the clerk, or, the clerk, that was a clerk through um, in Japan, yeah, wasn't it? And actually, I thought about it in hindsight. I know I shared the clip, but I thought about it in hindsight. And actually, in 2010, with the F duct. They were all doing Eau Rouge with one hand as True. well. So that was actually a slightly false thing to be telling people. But I think the biggest thing is the weight. Now the cars, because they're so heavy and they're so big. Mm. I think Lewis posted a picture on his Instagram earlier in the year of his current car versus his 2008 championship winner. The size difference is mm. unbelievable. Mm. And they've got so much downforce and they're so 
big in terms of the tire sizes and the floor uh, and the weight now. And therefore, they're less on the edge and less mm. exciting, perhaps. Mm. And uh, I, I still believe 2004-05 was the peak of F1 performance. You know, V10s, light, tire war, very mm. powerful cars, um, top teams, you know, pushing hard, top engine manufacturers pushing hard, nearly a 1,000 horsepower. Interesting strategies. I guess you've got refueling yeah. still then. So, yeah, you know. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the refueling thing, but still, because the cost of it was just ridiculous mm. and the racing... Mm. They were just racing pit stop to pit stop. Really. Yeah. So, but I think that in terms of peak performance, that's still got to be the era of mm. F1 peak performance. Um, I'm just going to do some questions from, oh, from people that have been that messaged yeah. us in. Um, so if you don't mind answering sure. them. Um, so Nishi has said, uh, will F1 come back to India? Unfortunately, I don't see it happening mm. in the short term unless the government has a big change of heart. Uh, at the moment, they, they don't seem to be behind it. Mm, okay, uh, that's a shame because that track in Delhi looked, yeah, it's like, great looked awesome. Drive, yeah. It was I great to drive on, on the video game. In helping to design turn Oh, five, brilliant. So. Wow. Applause for you. Yeah, well done. Um, yeah. Okay, Danny, uh, what is your prediction on who will be the next superstar in F1? I mean, Either I they could they, already be in it or I they haven't already risen up yet. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. You know, Leclerc, Max, um, uh, yeah, I think they, you know, they're the next two really of the future. Okay, um, being Mazzy has asked off of that, who is the next Indian driver to make it to Formula One? So far, you are the second and so far last Indian Formula One driver. Yep. Um, I think the next one up in the chain seems to be Jehan Daruvala, who yep. has um, done a good job in Formula Three this mm-hmm. season. I think he finished third in the championship, did a good good season really, uh, and he'll be in F two next year. So um, you know, we'll see how he gets on. Um, and this is an interesting one um, from, I'm just going to say Sat, I think his name is. Um, TV pundits over the years uh, do not seem to have a great opinion on Kimi Raikkonen's driving, while at the same time, he's one of the most adored drivers by fans. Do you agree with that? Or how do you, what's your views on Kimi Raikkonen? Especially, obviously, this year's taken a step back in, back in the alpha now, but he's putting some pretty good drives, as you'd expect from him. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think the, the thing is, Kimi's peak was 2000. Three, four, five, mm. six. That's when he was at his absolute peak. He was utterly brilliant. You know, some of those qualifying laps that he delivered in that era at McLaren was just sensational. And I think when he went off to rallying and all the rest of it, and after, actually after he lost, after sorry, he won the world championship in 07, I think he lost that edge a little bit. Mm. And yeah. he's still a very, very good racing driver. I think he's doing a really good job with Alpha, and he's exactly what Alpha need. Mm. He's giving them good direction, good experience. And he's delivering. So I think he... I don't think he deserved the Ferrari seat. I think they were right to put Leclerc in there yeah. as a top team. Um, but yeah, he certainly deserves his place at Alpha. Okay. Uh, and then we've had another one in, Tim. What's yeah, that one over there? Um, we've got one on, over on Instagram from Tig Brown. Will W Series help a female driver make a proper break into F1? I hope so. I, I You know, I think there are a lot of people who... I was a bit surprised about the, the, some of the reaction. There were a lot of people against... W Series mm. when it first got announced mm. to start off, and I wasn't one of them. Uh, I actually, I think it's a really good idea. I mean, you know, we had it. We had a similar situation in India where um, Honda started a um, uh, a motorcycle category for for women to take part in, and um, the grid was full. And uh, I remember talking to a couple of the girls, saying, "You know, why why haven't you done done other categories before? You know, clearly you're interested in it and you want to do it." And, and they felt that they weren't experienced enough to compete and they were felt a little bit intimidated to compete straight away in the main national championship mm-hmm. and this gave them a chance to, to get some racing experience you know going wheel to wheel with people and stuff and I think uh, in a similar vein if the W Series can give some of these girls a leg up and give them an opportunity to to um, kick start their careers and go off and race in other categories then that's good for them um, what they need for it to really be established is for one of these girls to go off and race in FIA F3 mm. and be winning races yeah. and fighting for the championship because then that underlines their credibility as a championship. Yeah, there's, there's a couple in there that, are, that have got genuine pace. Is it, is it Kovalainen? Um, I, can't, I can't remember her first name. Um, I think it's Kovalainen. 
but she is a Finnish girl. She's Kimmelainen. Kimmelainen. Kimmelainen was hakey. Yeah, it? no, she she's incredibly quick. And and Jamie, as everyone knows, is doing you know a sterling job flying the flag for female motorsport. But I'm I'm with you. I think it's good. And we, we spoke at length with Nikki uh, Shields on this, obviously with her involvement and and her view was that you know if it's creating more participation, more numbers that are coming through, that's you know eventually you're going to get one of these girls who who can be the next Lewis Hamilton potentially. So. Yeah, and I, th- I mean Bernie said to me years ago that the day the um, the sport has a, a female racing driver who's delivering in a way that Lewis Hamilton does, she will be the biggest biggest star mm. in the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at Danica in America. You uh, know, she she was unquestionably the biggest star of IndyCar and NASCAR mm. for for many years. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, but because wow. she was able to compete with them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a few more just off uh, Instagram, if that's okay. Um, Megan's asked a very good question. Um, do you have to pass your driving test to race a race car? No, yeah. you have to get a separate license. No, it's you? a separate race yeah. license. And then she's also on the back of that. God, she's gone for the very basic questions. Um, do you get cheaper or is it more expensive to get actual proper road car insurance if you're a racing driver? <laughs> Do they take that into account or not? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Interesting. And Tim, uh, I feel like this is a nice one to, to end the uh, the listener questions on. What is your perfect Sunday? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I would say go for a, a bike ride or a run in the morning. Yeah. And then go and get some lunch with, with the family out somewhere. Um, there's a really good South Indian place actually around the corner from us. Ooh, so we oh, lovely. Love an Indian. Uh, bit of a nap in the afternoon. Perfect. Oh. And then you watch got, a bit. You've got a child now. You need to yeah, get exactly. yeah. And then uh, watch some motorsport in the evening or watch some fun sport in the evening. What a perfect Sunday. Uh, a perfect Sunday. Um, right. We're going to wrap up in a moment. I've got um, a final four questions for you. And Harry, uh, this is off the cuff, my friend, but I've replaced one of our, our final four. Oh, my God. Um, I will kick off with my new question of the final four. Um, what are you rubbish at? DIY. Oh, really? Man, this is my terrible heart. at painting or hanging things up or anything. Yeah, same. Likewise. Go on, Harry. Fire one away. Um, if not racing, what would you be doing? Probably commentating. Yeah. <laughs> Fair play, yeah. <laughs> if you weren't commentating or racing. If it was outside of the motorsport sphere. Oh, I don't know. If that's even comprehensible. You definitely wouldn't be a builder. Yeah, probably be... Uh, I, I do like numbers, so I'd be something boring like an accountant or something. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, go on, Tim, you hit the next one. What's got you excited at the moment? Um, Doesn't have to be race-related. Uh, to be honest, just the prospect of not getting on a plane for uh, all of December and most of January. Mm. Quite, you know, it's been a, a long season with lots of travel. And, um, you know, season's sort of done now. I think we've got a couple of races to go, but championships are settled and um, got a few little projects uh, in the works as well over the winter so it'll be nice to spend a bit of time uh, at home and in the office just lining things up for for next year Mm. and finally how much would you say uh, of your success and people's successes is about luck and right place right time and how much is it down to hard work where where's the gap is there is it one or the other is it 50 50 where do you sit on that front I, th- I think it's probably 70-30 in terms of 70 hard work um, and commitment to the cause, 30 right place at the right time. Yeah. Excellent. Well, agree listen, more. Um, what an incredible story from start to finish, you know, coming from India, making it to Formula One, getting into broadcasting, which we barely, we, we haven't even touched I on know. broadcasting. We didn't know the whole session. Um, it, you, you've done incredibly well to get where you are. You've got a beautiful house here now um, in the UK and a lovely family and uh, and long may it continue. Karun Chandok, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Absolute Excellent pleasure. cup of tea and biscuits as well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to episode nine of the Motormouth podcast. We're nearly at double digits. Uh, thank you so much as well to Karun uh, for giving up his time and inviting us into his house. Uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. We've still got some more exciting guests lined up before the year is out and loads to come in the new year. Uh, we can't say anything yet, but make sure you keep an ear out as ever. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch up on all our previous uh, eight episodes uh, with Racing Driver and Fernando Alonso, Protégé, Callan O'Keefe, uh, Emmerdale Actor and Strictly Come Dancing Sensation. He's still in it, Calvin Fletcher. Uh, the first ever Top Gear, Stig Perry McCarthy. Our trip to Goodwood Highlights episode, Bobby Thompson, Charlie Martin, Nikki Shields, or Adam Christodoulou. There's also loads more content on MMTV and on the Motormouth app available to download 
to any device from any app store. Like, subscribe and review, please. It really helps people find the podcast and helps us to carry on making it. Uh, you can follow us on social media as well. On Twitter, it's at Motormouth underscore. On Instagram, at Motormouth underscore official. And on Facebook, we're just Motormouth. Uh, have a good one and we'll see you next time.